God's foolishness is wiser than wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. I have worked very, very hard on the sermon. And I mean I worked very hard on the sermon. At one point during the week, I had out three commentaries all about the scripture. I had out my Greek New Testament, my lexicon of the Greek New Testament. I had out hymnals, my computer, a memo pad with all my notes. I worked really, really hard on the sermon. And when Sunday came, I gripped it in my hands. I waited in the back. I walked down the center aisle, listened while everyone sang, prayed while everyone prayed. And then I got up in the pulpit and I got ready to preach. I started with gusto, with verve, with excitement. When I wanted people to hang on every word, I got a little quieter. I leaned on the pulpit. At the end, I ended with this loud and resounding call to more faithfulness among God's people. I worked up a sweat while I was preaching that day. I mean, I was hot and bothered. I had to wipe my brow before it was all done. And when it was done, I got down and I walked Across the center aisle, I went to the narthex, and I was shaking hands, kissing babies while people were leaving. And a man came up to me, a tall man with white hair, and he said something I will never forget for the rest of my life. While holding my hand, he said, son, when they call you son, you know it's bad already. He said, son, you sounded nice and all today, but you used too many of them big seminary words. And not a one of us understood not a one thing you said. Son, you used too many of them big seminary words. And not a one of us understood not a one thing you said. I've never forgotten that. It seems like Paul knows what that's about, too. Because there's something that's happening in the Corinthian community. Paul's writing this letter. He has said grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has warned them against having too many divisions within their midst. And now he starts to talk to them about wisdom. But how treating certain people as if they're smarter, better than those who might be dumb is a problem in the church. Because it's not just about who the disciples follow. It's about what class each person belongs to. As if we as people belong to certain classes. In our minds today, if we think about how we might be divided by class, we think about class warfare, all that stuff. We might think about economic disparities. We might think about where we are located geographically. But one of the ones we ignore to our detriment is the disparity of education. In our country today, the higher educated you are, the more likely you are to make more money. The lower educated you are, the more likely you are to make less money. I know more than you do, or I'm smarter than you are. Those are more than just childish taunts. They are how we view each other. How we view the in crowd and the out crowd. Which is strange, because Jesus, again and again, takes the out crowd and makes them the in crowd, and takes the in crowd and kicks them out. Paul puts it like this. What makes you think you're so smart? None of this stuff we call Christianity is very smart. God made the wisdom of the world into foolishness. The religious elite, they call for signs and wonders. The secular folk, those who don't believe, they want more wisdom. But we proclaim a cross. We proclaim a dead man hanging on the cross. This will always be a stumbling block to those who believe and to those who don't. Now there's a challenge for us. Because if you're here, you've probably been to church before. You've probably heard about Jesus before. But if we can try to imagine 
You've never heard about Jesus. You've never heard about a church. You've never been to a church. And a friend comes up to you and says, you are never going to believe what I just heard. There was a guy, an ordinary guy, but he was actually God. And we took him and we nailed his body to a cross until he died. And then three days later, after we put him in a tomb, he came back to life. Do you want to come with me on Sunday to hear more? That's kind of crazy. And it's pretty weird. But when we have crosses in our sanctuary and we sing songs about crosses, we don't really have to think about it that much. We don't have to think about how scandalous it all is. And that's a good word for it because it is scandalous. In our English Bible, it says the foolishness of the Gentiles. But in Greek, see, I'm trying to show off my seminary education. In the Greek, the word is scandalon. It's the scandal of the cross. It's not about foolishness. It's about how scandalous this all is. Paul says, even those of you who boast, as if you have something to boast about, you have nothing to boast about because the word of the cross, what Jesus has done for us, has nothing to do with your intelligence, has nothing to do with your wisdom, has nothing to do with your worth. The only thing it has to do with is Jesus. And that is a scandal and it is difficult for us to approach because everything about the crucifixion, the details, who was there, what they saw, there's nothing really religious about it. It's not very uplifting, even though Jesus gets lifted up. There's a reason people come to church on Easter Sunday, but they don't come on Good Friday. We like knowing the tomb is empty, but we don't want to have to think about how the guy got in the tomb in the first place. In the church day, we want everything to be inspirational. We want people to leave feeling better than when they arrived. We want to lift people up, even though what Jesus had to go through was the worst thing that we could possibly imagine. Now, I will confess to you that so much of what I learned in school, so much of what I was taught in seminary, a requirement to be a United Methodist pastor, was about how I have to speak all the right words to make everything right in your lives. So much about what I learned in school was about pushing you, lay people, to pray harder, to be more faithful, to read your Bibles, to give more money to church. So much of what I learned was about helping you see all the things you need to do to get closer to Jesus. And that's a problem. That's a really big problem. It's a problem because the cross stands for something different. The cross stands and says, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how much money you make. Jesus comes to you, not the other way around. The cross is a reminder. No matter, no matter how smart we are or dumb we are, how healthy we are or sick we are, how virtuous we are, how sinful we are, Jesus comes to us anyway. A few years ago, one of my best friends, fellow United Methodist pastor and the godfather to our son, his name is Jason Michelle. A few years ago, he went through eight rounds of chemotherapy to treat his incurable cancer. The treatment that he went through was so horrific that when the doctors told him they no longer saw signs of his tumors, he didn't believe them. He went to get a second doctor to tell, them whether, tell him whether it was true or not. And of course they said, yes, there's, there's no more sign of your tumors, but the cancer is still in your bone marrow and it will never go away. You are going to die from this one day, just not today. He's still going through what we call maintenance chemo, just a little bit of chemotherapy every couple months to try to keep it at bay. He went through this thing, and it was horrible, and his experience of having the cancer was a strange one. Because he said afterwards that in the beginning he lamented the loss of the life he thought he was going to have in the future. He thought he was going to live a long life. 
to be with his children, going long into the future, and he realized he was not going to get that life that he thought he had. But then after getting the news that sounded like good news, but also sounded like bad news that was really good news, he started to lament the loss of life he had found while he had cancer. Or to put it another way, he realized in the cancer that he was actually kind of grateful for it. Now that sounds crazy. I know it does. It is absurd to think about being grateful for cancer. But for him, he was grateful because while undergoing all those months of chemotherapy, with the constant fear of losing the life he thought he was going to get to live, he discovered that he had his theology completely backward. For too long he had believed and he had preached and articulated a faith that requires all of you people to get closer to Jesus. That you've got to read your Bibles more, you've got to pray harder, you've got to give more money, and only if you do that can you get close to Jesus. But what he found in his suffering, what he found in all of his chemotherapy, wasn't that he had to do anything to get closer to Jesus, but that Jesus was getting closer to him in all of his suffering. That it's not up to us to do anything at all because God is the one who does it for us. That no matter what we're going through, no matter how bleak or frightening or terrifying, God is there in the suffering. We call that a theology of the cross. We call it scandalous. And we might see this thing. Every time we see it, we think about how Jesus saves us from our sins, which is true. But for Paul and for Jason, my friend, it's a little different. It's that, yes, Jesus saves us from our sins. But it's also where Jesus meets us in our sins. The cross is where Jesus meets us in our lives. In all of our suffering, in all of our sins, in all of our shames, in all of our pains. And that is downright scandalous. It rubs against everything we've been taught to think and to speak and to believe. If you've ever left church on a Sunday morning feeling guilty about something you haven't done. If you've ever left church feeling guilty about something you've left undone then you have not seen the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross is that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything. Because Jesus does the everything that we could not or would not do for ourselves. It is scandalous to know that God in Christ meets us in our sins. Not on the mountaintops of achievements, not in our master's degree of theology, not in our money, not in our perfect health, not in our morality that God meets us in those moments when we're frightened and we're scared and we're alone. But Paul writes because he wants to knock the Corinthians down a peg or two. He says, you think you're so smart and none of this is smart. This is crazy. It's scandalous. God comes to do for you what you could not would not do for yourselves. You have nothing to boast about, you people who call yourselves Christians, because you all do things you know you shouldn't and you all avoid doing things you know you should no amount of education or status or wealth or health can fix the fundamental problem within you. All these things we lift up, education, economics, status, power, perfect bodies, they have nothing to do with the cross. The cross says those things don't matter. And the craziest thing of all is that is how we view each other. We look out at the world, we look at our friends, we look at our enemies, we look at our neighbors, we look at our coworkers, and we judge them and we value them on things that have no value or meaning. We look out at people and we determine their worth or value by how much education they have, or how much money they have in their bank account, or how skinny they are, or what color hair they have. And Jesus says that is all foolishness. 
It is all complete rubbish. The cross is the focus. Nothing more, less, or else. It is the focus. And there's a reason why we like to put it up there, but we don't have to think about it. It's why I brought this cross out today, and I put it in front of the altar so we're forced to look at it. Not hide away on a corner, not put it on our necklace and not have to think about it. We cannot view each other except through the lens of the cross. That's one of the messages from Paul about the scandal of the cross. We don't view each other on our own self-perceived worth or status or value. The only way we view people is through this thing. And that changes everything. Because we're so selfish. Golly, we're selfish. We're also self-righteous. Always looking after instant gratification. We're moved by consumption. We lift up the healthy and the wealthy as these paragons of virtue and idealism. And the more we do this, the more the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The more the marginalized get forgotten and left to the side. And the more we start to see, the more we stop seeing that Jesus came not for the healthy and the wealthy, not for the poor and the destitute, but for everybody. The cross is this unique thing that actually levels everything out. Not about a pastor stands behind it. About how all of us are in the shadow of the cross. And when we start to see that that's where we reside, we start to see everything and everyone else differently. And it's scandalous. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen. There is a church just up the road from us, another United Methodist Church. It's called Good Shepherd United Methodist Church. It's on Dale Boulevard. Uh, it's unique in its architecture. It's unique in its shape. Their sanctuary does not look like ours. Their sanctuary is in the shape of a dodecagon. It has 12 sides. It kind of looks like a circle. And the altar isn't up against one wall. The pulpit isn't against one wall. Their altar is right smack dab in the middle of the church. And all the pews are in a circle around the altar. The architect designed it that way for one reason. That whenever you come and sit in that church, you can't look at anyone else in the church unless you're looking through the altar. Imagine you're sitting here and everybody else in the church is sitting over there and you've got this altar in between you. An altar with a cross in the middle. The idea is, yeah, you might be judging someone or hating somebody over there or frustrated with someone, but when you show up in church, you can't look at them except through the lens of the cross. Now, it makes, things pre you know, it makes preaching hard because... No matter what you're doing, you always have to preach like this. You've got to walk in a circle. Because at some point, you're always showing your back to somebody. <laughs> but when the altar is there in the middle, that's why I put the cross here today. Now, I'm going to be the only one behind it in just a second. But when I pray over communion, I'm going to look at all of you through the cross. That's how we should always be looking. Not with these judgments we put on each other. Not with our biases. Not with any of that kind of stuff. As Christians, the only lens we're supposed to wear is this one right here. Because this lens says it doesn't matter what the world tells you about yourself, you have worth and you have value. It doesn't matter what anyone has told you about who you are, you have worth and you have value to Jesus. So when we pray, view me through the cross, and I will view you through the cross. Let's pray. Lord, you've gathered us here gather us here to look differently out at the world and at ourselves. You've called us to feast on the bread, drink from the cup, and to be different than we were when we arrived. 
Help us to see, Lord, that by doing so, it really is uplifting. Because we are told and we have learned that all of us have value in your kingdom. All God's people say, Amen.